Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Bill Schult. Bill is a member of City Council for Crescent Springs, Kentucky. That is in the northern Kentucky area, close to Cincinnati, but still, of course, in the state of Kentucky. Really appreciate Bill coming on the show today. If you're a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you send me some health insurance referrals. That would really help. Licensed in 14 states across the country. Most of my business is done for Medicare. People who are turning 65 or need help with Medicare Advantage or supplement plans in the states of mostly Kentucky and Florida. But like I said, I am licensed in 14 states across the country. The details for the sponsors of The Kelly Patrick Show are as follows. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in in today's episode. Well, as a starter, I'll say this. The Kelly Patrick Show over time has turned into more of a libertarian-centric political podcast, okay? That's just what I enjoy. Um, When it comes to actually taking action within the, the, the world of being a libertarian, there's not that much you can do. So it's kind of a difficult deal. You're like yelling at people like, hey, our currency, it's, it's losing value each year. Don't you see the numbers? Don't you? And people are like, I don't under, they're looking at you like, I don't understand the numbers and I don't want to. So it's very, it can be discouraging. However, there is through representative um, government, there is a way to infiltrate the system and to possibly make change. I would argue, Bill Schultz, who's present with me now, you are, in some ways, taking action as much or more than anyone. Bill Schultz, could you give a, a, an introduction uh, to our listeners? I know you've been on before, but if you could reintroduce yourself, what's your title? Uh, what brought you to being a libertarian? What made you run for office? 
Yep, my name is Bill Schultz. I live in northern Kentucky, just south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I am on the city council of Crescent Springs, Kentucky. Your listeners may remember me as the person who was the first member of the Libertarian Party to be endorsed uh, in his race by Thomas Massey. And uh, that may have put me over the edge, made me be the leading vote receiver in my um, in my race. But it's funny you started off talking about inflation and, and things being out of your control because, you know, having been on council for a little over a year now, I've seen the impacts of that on, on our city, and it puts you in a difficult spot when mm. you know, the city wants city you know, with, with no insult to our anarcho-capitalist friends, you know, there are certain things that the city is doing now that if there's going to be taxation, there's going to be government spending are worthwhile. You know, I'll use an example of like the fire department. Very few libertarians would put the fire department on top of their list for things to, uh, to abolish. You need fire protection. Surely it could be better off privatized. But insofar as the city exists and there's no private fire department, having one paid for by tax dollars is reasonably acceptable. And our firefighters need to be paid. And really, we've actually had a volunteer fire department in our area for a long, long time. Uh, much different than a lot of our neighboring cities. So I commend our, our city staff, in a sense, for doing that. But now, because of the inflation, the wage inflation, because of the labor crisis from the COVID stuff, we have to pay these people more or hire some full-time ones and what have you. It puts me in a difficult position. You know, I don't have a, I don't have a ready option to, you know, abolish our fire authority and, mm. and do a private department. So it trickles down to the local level. Right, but you I'm not going to vote for a tax increase. I'm not going to vote for a spending increase. So. Wow, you won't, regardless. I have it yet. I'll put it that way. Okay. Perhaps okay. I could be convinced, but uh, costs are going up, right? And you know, it's tough because I make these arguments, and you know, a very reasonable response from you know some of the people on council that don't vote with me is costs are going up. You can't deny that. And I can't. So, uh, but that being said, um, even in the event that spending is going up, you know, you can certainly limit how much spend limit how much spending is going up. You can ask questions about why are they doing things this way? Why are they making these assumptions? And uh, it, it's still a good thing to do. But I'll give you a, a brief example from city council. A few months ago, the topic of a tax increase came up. That I was 1,000% against, of course. And, uh, you know, I was told all by the people voting for the tax increase on council, oh, we need we need to do it not for this year, but for next year. Because uh, we next year our houses are going to be reassessed and then the rate will be higher already. It's messed up. But um, I said, no, I said, we don't need to do this. Like, we're a pretty healthy city. Our auditors came back and said that, you know, the benchmark for cash on hand is like six to nine months of operations. We have 16 months. We have plenty of cash. We don't need to raise taxes. Whatever. The vote deadlocked 3-3. The mayor broke the tie. We raised taxes a little bit. Flash forward a few months later, some other big capital project, and we lose the grant we were supposed to get for that project. Mm-hmm. So now an extra quarter million dollars got to come out of the taxpayers' funds. And I said, well, we can't afford it, right? We just had to raise taxes. Well, no, we actually have the money to afford this. We don't need to. So, you know, three months prior, we don't have cash. Now that we need a little more cash out of the budget, they say, we can afford it, no problem. So, you know, ultimately, a lot of what's said in these city council meetings, committee meetings, what have you, is people saying whatever they want to say to get whatever they want done. And uh, it's, it's, it's swampy. It's swampy even in a small northern Kentucky city like Crescent Springs. You got... You know, you got people with personal relationships, you know, married people on the council, all these sort of things. So it's it's an interesting experience. When did you take office? I took office uh, January of 2023. So I was elected in November of 2022. So it's been just over one year. Okay. 
it's not a full-time position. Not even close. Not yeah, even no, f- close. From the standpoint of um, of anybody listening, considering running for local office, I would say it winds up being two to five meetings per month. Um, half of those meetings are fairly flexible in timing. You know, certainly you could do more. I could do more. Um, I wish I really had the time and energy to do so. You know, I own my own business. I have four kids under nine. So it's a it's a busy life, and, and I wish I could do more for the city, get involved in more things. But, uh, no, I mean, I have been able to make a positive impact, perhaps not as substantial as I'd like. But, um, you know, I'll give you an example. I They put me on this um, committee that's overhauling our city's zoning laws, which is sort of ironic, a libertarian on the zoning committee. And, you know, I'm not able, and that's a difficult one too. I mean, it's sort of a county-led project, and I understand the idea of, like, you don't want each city having totally radically different zoning than the others next door because how is any construction company going to be able to do business in the area if every single city they go to? Anyways, though, you know, they're they're rehauling it, making all the cities have a similar thing, and then they can change from there. And it's tricky. It's like, I, you know, I come into the project midway through, and I'm told, oh, yeah, it's simplifying, it's simplifying. And I say, well, what's the word count of the old zoning code and the new one? Well, the new one has about 50,000 more words in it. Well, how is that simpler? Well, you know, a lot of the words are giving sort of, you know, options to board of adjustments and all that to sort of have give more latitude and leeway. But also it's like, well, there's also a giant new section on landscaping zoning, which is insane. So it's, it's tricky. But, you know, on that little committee, for example, which is with people that love zoning, you know, I've been able to say, like, everything that they present to us that's not like a mandatory, you must do this. I remind them, like, if there's no victim, there is no crime. If there's no victim, there's no crime. And everything we do you know, is ultimately turning it into a crime. You know, it's, uh, if they're going to, you know, cause they'll say, oh, it's not a crime. It's a civil, it's a civil uh, punishment, not a criminal one. If they, if they violate it and I say, okay, well, if they continue violating this zoning code, and it's a civil punishment. They continue not listening to that. What's going to happen. Eventually they'll go to jail. So it is a crime. So, you know, and I think I've, I've even changed a little bit, some minds and, and convinced some people, Hey, we don't need to regulate every little thing. But it's tough. It's uh, like I mentioned, we, a lot of the votes that are really important, 3-3 three, three deadlock, and then mayor breaks the tie in the opposite direction of me. So that's a little bit frustrating. But The mayor being, mind if I ask about the mayor's political party? I would say he's a Republican. To be honest, it's a very red area. I mean, again, it's Thomas Massey country. I would say uh, I would be shocked if any of the people on council would really call themselves a Democrat. It's an interesting experience. You know, one of the guys on council who's consistently voted for every tax increase, every spending increase who campaigned on we need to find ways to pay for things without raising taxes told me he voted for Gary Johnson multiple you know both elections but he you know he went, went well it's like a lot of people are libertarian except for their one topic you know when it's his city oh well it's reasonable that they would do this I have another guy on council the guy who chairs the finance committee that I'm on who like has told me like every fiat currency eventually dies and like how the gold standard crypto he's got his investments he gets it <laughs> but he also says things like run government like a business which Sounds good, in a sense, until you realize what he means is, if we have a problem, just raise revenue. It's like, well, that's not, that's not how we should view taking money from the, city, the citizens of our city. You know, it's not a business, because a business raises money, raises revenue by doing a better job selling, by maybe raising prices people can voluntarily pay more for. We raise revenue by telling people, we're going to take your house if you don't pay this bill. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Um, there's, there's, it's been interesting. It's been very, it's been a very educational procedure. And ultimately I've not had to abandon my principles yet. 
uh, or, or, or ignore them. Um, and I feel good about what I've done, but I, I wish I could do more like we all do. A lot of different directions I can take this. Right. Um, okay. What, what about being on city council? Did you not expect? <clears throat> I didn't expect, and I probably should have, but the important things get rushed through and the unimportant things are where we spend our time. You know, our tax, the tax, the tax increase was like a last minute special meeting that, you know, they followed the letter of the law by notice to constituents and all that, but it wasn't, you know, it's a meeting we should have known was going to be scheduled for a long time and there was very little discussion. The topic I alluded to earlier, which was actually about the grant being lost, rehauling, you know, we, we basically got bids for a $500,000 park revamp, which I was against in the first place. But part of the logic was that there was a matching 50% grant up to $500,000 or 250 matching, I should say, if, you know, if you spent that much. So the idea was, well, let's do 500,000 so that we can maximize the grant, which in a sense makes sense. And then we lost the grant. And so to me, it was like, all right, we go back to the drawing board. Maybe it's not a $500,000 project. Maybe it's a $300,000 project. And the, it was instead it was special meeting three days before Christmas. We got to vote on it now. If we don't, the vendor is going to raise prices after January first. Is you being a libertarian the reason you lost the grant? <laughs> I hope not. I don't know. I wasn't involved in the grant writing oh, process. Okay, that okay, was city okay, staff. Okay, okay. But um, sorry, I'm not trying to okay. stir up negative. They may have found me. They may have found me. No, um, but you know it was it was this big rush thing, and you know I, I said, look, how do we know that we're prudently spending the taxpayers' money if how do we know this project can't be less than five hundred thousand dollars? And you know the response was, well, the vendors came back at five hundred and five fifty and five seventy five. Well, I said, well, yeah, we asked for a five hundred thousand dollar bid. Of course they'd come above five hundred. When do you ask for a five hundred thousand dollar bid? Mm. And a vendor says, here's three eighty five. You know, so little stuff like that, and it got jammed through. Whereas other things, you know, somebody in the city put up a flagpole that was too tall, and now it's like a three year lawsuit. <laughs> or, you know, we, we spend time talking about this one stop sign that, technically speaking, council has nothing to do with stop signs, but the uh, city administrator and chief of police, as a courtesy to council, said we're thinking about doing this. Do you have any thoughts? And spent 45 minutes talking about it, and really just one guy was against it. And uh, Was it causing accidents? <clears throat> no. It was... Well, it's, it's just so indicative. Of, it was basically... We put a sidewalk in, in this area, which we put there because people were already walking there and we thought this was safer. But then because we put a sidewalk, the idea was, well, now we need a stop sign because there's a crosswalk. It's like, well, people were walking there before, you know? And there's also the new fire station there and it backs out to there and yada, yada, yada. But just, just you know, it's just, again, the unimportant secondary issues where we spend all of our time and the big stuff gets rushed. So it it feels like the swamp in a sense. You know, it, it the way you imagine things in Washington D.C. is sort of how things work locally. Maybe not with that as much, you know, blanket corruption and self dealing, but certainly with things being rushed and people not reading things in their entirety and all of that. A lot of rubber stamping. Would you compare yourself to Javier Malay? <laughs> I was. I wish I was as radical as him. In all honesty. That's my biggest disappointment in myself is I haven't been that radical yet. Okay, okay. Part of it's just time. You know, it's, it's, um, it's not, it's, again, it's not even so much, oh, that being on council is so time consuming. I don't have time. It's just, I don't have time to, 
you know, spend, like, figure out my own resolutions, figure out which ordinance. Like, one thing I said I'm going to do from the beginning, I may have said this on your podcast, like, I'm going to sit down one day with every single law we have in the books in our city, and I'm just going to start redlining stuff that I don't like. I'm going to show up to one meeting with 30, 40 items saying, not part of the law anymore, not part of the law anymore, not part of the law anymore. Just haven't had time to do it, you know? It's no mm. one, no one's fault but my own, and, and, you know, perhaps a little bit of my own taking this on when i got a lot going on. But, um, but I, I wish. Malay is... Fantastic. You know, what I'll never, ever forget from Malay's first few, I guess, month or two in office is um, when he removed bank regulations and the bankers were in the streets protesting. I said, that's the definition of regulatory capture. Mm. If somebody doesn't know what regulatory capture is, you tell them it's removing regulations and the people that were supposed to be restricted by these regulations now miss them. Clearly, it was to their benefit. So I, I admire so much of what he's doing and can only strive to be more like him in many instances. Earlier, you mentioned something to the tune of you have not had to compromise your libertarian values yet. Something along those lines, I believe. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I'd imagine if you make it to the point, and I know he's your buddy, Thomas Massey. I love him. I just got a t-shirt the other day in the mail. I'm a big Thomas Massey fan. Wish I could vote for him. To a degree, if you make it to Washington for Congress or Senate, to a degree, for example, I think he was endorsing uh, McCarthy at one point for right. the Speaker of the House. Okay, mm-hmm. now McCarthy's not the most principled guy. Right. Uh, behind closed doors, I'm guessing Massey would probably even say, "Yeah, okay, you got a case there." He would acknowledge maybe. Okay, but you don't have much of an option right. <laughs> when you're in that type of a situation. It's not like, well. McCarthy's out, we're going to sub in Rand Paul. There's not like a Rand Paul clone to slide in there for everything, unfortunately. Um, Massey endorsed DeSantis. DeSantis is viewed by some as being like a a more of a, or at least somewhat of a war guy for sure. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about, about that? That's part of the game? That's what you have to do? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that I think in terms of Sacrificing your principles, there's probably three um, reasons you do it. One of it is just incrementalism. You know, like I saw somebody ask today, you know, would you vote to abolish the IRS and replace it with a 5% flat income tax? I'd probably say yes, because incrementally it's good. Yeah. And then I'd celebrate for one day, and then the next day I'd start trying to get that 5% to 4 or 3 or 0. Okay. Um, I think two would be the element of realistically just deal-making and currying favor. You know, I Massey has done a lot of that, and it got him on a lot better um, House committees and all that during this tenure. And so there's probably an element of, of that. I think the third and you know, the other reason you do it is, you know, when we think about just the libertarian on the street who's going to vote for president, they always have the option to vote for no to vote for none of the above. Or, of course, vote for a third-party candidate who's not going to win. But ultimately, like, when you're in elected office... And the item comes up. I I guess you can abstain, but abstentions are functionally a yes or a no vote anyways. So ultimately, you're deciding between two options, not three or four or five. So there is an element of you know picking sort of the best option that's available to you. I'll give an example of that that's going to be upcoming for me, potentially. There's been whispers of our city merging with another city. And... Uh, It's interesting to think about because from a libertarian standpoint, you know, we believe in decentralization. We believe in smaller units. Sure. But it does get to a certain point where if you have 
one community, set aside city limits, but one community, one group of people with the same values, same interests, all of that, and it's been split into two governments, all that means is two city buildings to pay for, two city administrators, two city clerks, you know, two separate city lawyers and city engineers and all that. There does get to a standpoint where it's just duplicative spending. You know, in my city, for example, you know, there's many, many streets where our public works department, when it snows, will go snow plow half the street and turn around because the rest of the street belongs to a different city. That's insanity. Mm. Clear, clearly, it's like just you could just finish the street. It's going to be faster for everybody. You don't have to drive two trucks down there, you know? And so I'm going to be faced soon with this, this, uh, this idea of like, do you vote for a merger? Not only that, here's an interesting thought question for you. Say the cities do merge and say as a result, the net, let's say property tax revenue as an example for the two combined entities goes down a bit because we saved on spending so we can go down on property taxes. But let's say my specific constituents who put me in office do pay a tiny bit more. The other cities goes down by a lot. We go up by a tiny bit to get to the same rate. Do I have an obligation to my Mm. voters specifically? Do I have an obligation to the community as a whole and reducing government spending? It's tough, you know? And there's there's certainly strong arguments on both sides of do you vote yes or no in the merger for that? But uh, that's the sort of stuff where, again, like... There's no clear-cut answer, and there's 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 libertarian perspectives on both sides, and it's not going to turn out perfectly, and there would be a certain way that I'm accused of abandoning my values. So we'll see. We'll see. I don't think it'll come to that specific thing with the taxation, but we have uh, I have I have I have ways I'm thinking about it. Very interesting. So much thought and energy in our country and analysis goes into federal. You know, Congress, the Senate, the presidential race, but the local city councils, even in a city like Louisville, a big city like like we're sitting here in Louisville, Kentucky, members of the city council. I, <laughs> I wish I could say I felt confident about it, about right. many of them at all, but that probably does impact me more than I even realize. Yep, absolutely. It's um, it is interesting. But my city does less than most. First of all, it's small. And second of all, we don't have our own schools and uh, and technically the fire's separate. That's a long story. But um, but yeah, I mean, you think about a city like this or even a, even a bigger city of, you know, even 20,000 people, the impact it has on you is is humongous. And, you know, as one, I think one, one way it becomes really obvious was during COVID, you know, in terms of shutting down city parks and things like that. Now in Kentucky, I'll say specifically, Really, a lot happens at the county level outside of Louisville. Um, you know, Louisville's got the sort of Jefferson County-Louisville merger thing that happened 20, 30 years ago, whatever. Mm-hmm. But uh, outside of Louisville, where it's just more traditional city, traditional county, really it's hard to get things done at the city level because so much is done by the county. You know, I think about Ohio, for example, where like an Ohio city couldn't legalize marijuana, but they could because misdemeanors were... Uh, magistrated, I guess you'd say, at the city level, they could reduce court costs and fines to zero, de facto doing it. I can't do that in Kentucky because everything's on the county level, even misdemeanors. So it's uh, certainly in super certain places like Louisville, other small, other bigger cities, super, super impactful. And even in a small city like mine, there's definitely a benefit and a difference I can make. Why did Thomas Massey endorse you? (laughs) Uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll start with the, the punchline after the uh, the, the lead-in. After I won, he, uh, 
I reached out to him and said, hey, I won. Thanks so much. And he goes, I'll do to you what Donald Trump did to me. I'll endorse you at the last minute and take credit for you winning. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, no, pretty, I, that's pretty good. He said that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, I think he, you know, I, I, so shifting from Massey for a second, I look at a lot of what Rand Paul's done lately, and it's like his never Nikki thing, his never Nikki Haley. And it's funny because, like, he'll he'll say these things, like, I don't see how any good libertarian or conservative can support Nikki Haley. And it's he always lists libertarian before conservative. And I truly believe Rand Paul and Massey as well, they really don't consider themselves conservatives. Now, I'm not saying that every position that they have and vote for are things that I necessarily agree with as a libertarian, but they consider themselves libertarian. They can, I think they consider their participation in the Republican Party some combination of either A, the Republican Party had, has libertarian roots that we need to go back to, or B, just I'm a libertarian with a lowercase l, but the best political strategy is to the Republican Party. And so I think in, Tom, in, his endorsement of, in the case of his endorsement of me, um, I know him a little bit um, through a few different uh, channels throughout the years. And when he heard I was running... Um, Really what had happened, I think I said this in your last podcast, but I had put something on one of my flyers that was kind of an homage to him and his Primax, some sort of food freedom thing. And I think he was a little bit just impressed that I included that and said, hey, I'd love to endorse you. Wow. We are fortunate being what I would say is philosophically radical libertarians, both you and I, right? Agreed. To live in Kentucky. We got Rand Paul and Thomas Massey. <laughs> Absolutely. I, uh... You know, I had heard sort of when I was starting my political journey years and years ago that apparently it's a very common thing throughout the country for people to say, oh, all the Republicans and Democrats are all terrible, but my rep, he's pretty good. Mm. Apparently it's very common. It's because, you know, once you've met somebody and shook their hand, you wind up, um, oh, yeah, he's probably a good guy. I've met him. And so there was a long time where I thought, like, is that what I am with Massey and with Paul? Mm. But I think you and I are plugged into some more national communities of libertarians and liberty-minded people, and I don't. I think we are lucky. I don't think you and I are biased by being local. I don't think so. I have right. no predisposition to trying to buddy up to Mitch McConnell. Well, exactly right. I, he lives 10 minutes from where I live. Oh, that's right. I guess yeah. he'll be the closest, yeah. Yeah. So there, there, I'm sure there is something to that, though. Right. Um, so that is an interesting, uh, point, but I would, I agree at their core, even when you hear, if you type in Rand Paul on Israel to YouTube, he's a Senator. So, I mean, he can't say the craziest shit in the world. Right. Okay. Well, I don't know. Senator Lindsey Graham seems to say the craziest shit in the world. So no, but I know what you're saying. Go ahead. He does. Yeah. But I guess if it goes certain ways. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Rand Paul tapers his word, you know, he'll choose his words wisely. And a lot of times, if you Google, I've Googled it recently, I wonder what Rand Paul has said about Israel over the years. And I start watching YouTube videos. And most of it is him saying, defending against accusations that he's right. anti-Israel. So, I mean, most of it is like, hey, you, I didn't vote for that. You guys were wrong. I didn't vote to defund that. So it's a very defensive stance. But I do believe at his core... He knows what's up. Yep. Yeah. No, and look, I, I'm i not going to sit here and say that Rand Paul and Thomas Massey are using the wrong political strategy hmm. to affect liberty in this country. I mean, they both got elected to federal office. And, you know, let's be honest, the Libertarian Party, uh, its history is 
not been very successful. So I, I, I'm not going that path, and I don't believe it's the long-term way to do it. But I, I'm not, I, I don't spend time criticizing those who do more than me, and those two have both gotten a lot more done than I have. I might criticize a few individual actions. The Kevin McCarthy thing was perplexing. But, but, but what's yeah. the same thing is I don't know all the details. Right. You know, it, behind closed doors, Thomas Massey knows he'll say yes to a couple things that, you know, no one else will. You know, I, I, I trust that guy. Regardless, if I were to be voting in the presidential primary and DeSantis was still in, if I were to be voting as a Republican in the presidential primary, I would just take Thomas Massey's advice and vote for DeSantis. Yeah. No, I understand where you would be coming from on that. I I would, uh, I don't know if I could do it, but I, I totally get it. I'm not going to, but, you know, right. theoretically, I, I trust uh, that, like you yeah. said, that they yeah. are first and foremost uh, libertarians. Since we're ta- I know we had some notes that we were going to talk about today, but since we're talking shop, about politics and political strategy. Did you see where RFK said that he had been in talks with people at the Libertarian Party as running as as the possibility of running as a a Libertarian? Yeah, you're talking about the clip that came out on CNN this past weekend or late last week? Correct. Just uh, uh, this, I've done a little deep dive on this. My understanding is that that clip was played this weekend, but he actually recorded it while he was still in the Democratic primary before he announced his independent campaign. So, and wow. if you remember at that time, September, October last year. He seemed libertarian. Yeah, well, yeah, that too. <laughs> but, uh, there, but there were discussions, there was like reports, I think in Newsweek, of him having a meeting with Angela McArdle and, um, and all of that. So, yeah, I might be wrong on that. He may have said that more recently, but my understanding was that that clip, it was an old clip and before he went independent. Um, now, of course, he is, debating at the Libertarian Party of California convention coming up soon. Um, he's de- debating? Do you know who's debating? He's debating, well, Cornell West, who's a leftist. Wow. He's, I don't know, everyone's not freaking out about him. He's not running as a Libertarian, clearly. But then also Michael Rechtenwald. I think Chase Oliver, but I'm not sure. I'm not so sure the third-party candidates. Yeah, so they're, the Libertarian Party of California is hosting a presidential candidate debate, and they happen to be including two non-libertarians, which I think is totally fine. A lot of the internal libertarian freak out about that is preposterous to me. But uh, Especially considering Cornell West probably has the best... <clears throat> it, um, well, I shouldn't say that. Chase Oliver's probably good, too. And Rechtenwald, obviously, is. But, I mean, he's at least good on the war thing, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, Cornell that's West, true. at least, is probably yeah. anti all these wars, which is a yeah. big deal, in my opinion. Agreed. I, look, I look, I look forward to... Seeing um, Robert Kennedy and Cornell West, at least on economic issues, have to debate libertarians. Like, I think it's great news for people to be going on about how oh, they're trying to sell the party out. It's ridiculous, and I, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that RFK could um, could win the nomination because ultimately the Libertarian Party predicts or selects its presidential candidate in May in D.C. and it's going to be a vote of roughly a thousand delegates from all the different states and I mean I can't see in the next three months he's able to whip up 501 of them so but no a lot of what he's done is great but yeah he's he's sort of reversed course on his uh on this war in Israel yeah he seemed anti-war when it was one that was politically advantageous for him to try to attack Biden which politically clearly was a great strategy yeah exactly you know, it's uh, it's interesting. We were talking briefly before the uh, before we went on air about Israel Palestine, and 
I'm conflicted about like what's the best approach for a libertarian when it comes to talking about war. You know, to me, there's only two paths. One is just basically nothing more than we shouldn't fund it, we shouldn't fund it, we shouldn't fund it. The other path is like, I'm going to show the weaknesses and bad parts of the side the U.S. is funding. You know, whether in the in the case, whether that's Ukraine or whether that's Israel. Wow. Of course, we are giving some money to Palestine as well. <laughs> of course, Israel is giving money. I don't know if you saw that. That as of five years ago, Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister of Israel, said funding, said supporting and bolstering Hamas is part of our core strategy. So how anybody believes this war is anything more than a money-making machine is beyond me. But, um, but no, I, you know, it's, but yeah, of course, when you, when you criticize Ukraine, you're accused of supporting Russia. When you criticize Israel, you're accused of supporting, accused of supporting Hamas. It's like, of course not. I, I have nothing good to say about Russia or Hamas. Nothing good to say about any of these four countries. I just want us to stay out of it. So I, I wonder more and more is the answer as a libertarian, not to get into the good and bad of each side. Is it more, we shouldn't fund, we shouldn't fund, we shouldn't fund. I don't know. Behind closed doors, many people who are going to vote for Donald Trump for president, behind closed doors, they will tell me they don't think we should fund anything, any any uh, of the wars. You know, they'll say, I support Israel's right to exist. However, I don't think they should be able to do it on their own. And that's such a loaded statement. I'm like, come on, they've never been standing on their own. Right. Okay, so that's a different thing. But a lot of people who vote Republican do kind of at least grasp that fiscal conservatism to a degree. But then they just turn right around and vote for Lindsey Graham or whoever the Republican is in front of them. Yeah, well, I mean, Trump deserves a lot of credit for that. You know, this whole getting a a real movement of Republicans. Obviously, the Republican base in 2005 was a total 180 degree difference from that. They were happy to support every single war you could ever imagine. Are we less like that now? I think so. I think what you're alluding to, I think there's a lot of Republicans out there that their instinct is don't fund it. Okay. You know, maybe maybe they can be convinced if they hear the horror stories of what Hamas is doing or what have you, but uh, which half of them are probably true and half are just made up. But uh, no, I think they're, they're I think Trump deserves some credit for, uh, yeah, there's this real base of Americans that are like, no, I don't want the money going overseas. That's a good thing. Not to say that Trump's presidency was always perfect in that direction. In fact, it was bad in many times in that way. But the reality is that his base is... Uh, Doing that, it's funny. I, you know, I was listening to, I think, a stand-up comedy podcast, and uh, the guest was, as you could imagine, you know, Democrat, and he was saying, like, he made a comment. He goes, he goes, Trump's Trump's not the problem. He's not what we have to worry worry about. It's it's his base. It's those people. And I'm thinking, I feel the opposite. Mm. I feel like a lot of the Trump voters sure. have their heads oriented in a reasonably good way. Sure. Not to say that they're politically libertarian or philosophically libertarian, but. They at least are trying to focus on, like, why is government doing all this? There is this deep state. Why are we spending money overseas? You know, Trump himself may may have lost to the deep state in so many ways and may have spent and spent and spent. But uh, I, some of the MAGA people, you know, I, I like. And you saw it with the whole Israel thing. Certainly a giant chunk of the big Trump people were in favor of it, but... There was Candace Owens. I mean, that I I literally thought of her as you were saying that. Right. I mean, you know, she just, she and, you know, her employer, the Daily Wire, is as pro-Israel as it gets. And she was like, no, I'm out, I'm out, I'm against it. And, you know, gotta give people like that credit that, uh, that really seem to be interested in, in bringing the troops home and, and stopping the spending. Bill, a topic we wanted to talk about today is 
how do libertarians articulate their stance? I guess it would be economically uh, their when it comes to the wealth gap, income inequality. Basically, how would you have a discussion with someone who supports Bernie Sanders, for example, that type of a person? How would you address um, that type of a, a conversation? And, and you and I were speaking recently, and I said, I saw a clip, and I think it was mentioned on part of the problem, where Dave Rubin just really kind of fumbled away a, a point. And I thought it was interesting to hear, because he was trying, and on the Joe Rogan experience, he kind of sounded dumb when it came to a libertarian uh, response to something. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on the, the addressing wealth inequality? You know, I think a lot of libertarians' instinct, when they hear complaints from the left about, oh, the ultra-wealthy, oh, income inequality, all that, is to tell them they're wrong because the left fundamentally doesn't understand economics, and so they're probably getting this point wrong. I actually think libertarians can very consistently agree with them on the problem, but I think, and then use that to explain to them the source of the problem is government. And specifically, I'd say the Federal Reserve. But, you know, I have a few thoughts on this topic. One thing that I was pulling up is if you look at inequality in the United States of America... Uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, from the 1900s, it actually was consistently getting uh, lower. The um, the one percent you know, before tax income share was about 20 percent in the 1920s. It got to as low as 10 percent around 1971, and then like so many things in 1971 that are bad, just start shooting right back up. And what do we know happened in, or as, as the website is, WTF happened in 1971.com? It was when the Federal Reserve finally went completely off the gold standard. And you can go to that website and see so many different things, both with wages and productivity and all that. But I think, um, no, I think there's, there's many different ways to talk about this topic of income inequality, poverty, and all that in a pro-libertarian way. You know, one thing I think about often is... Um, is, you know, deficit spending. You know, this idea that uh, a lot of, and this is a good response to leftists in particular, well, they'll say, oh, government spending's good for the economy. Oh, if you spend more than, than you bring in, therefore you increase the deficit, or if, if the deficit needs to be financed by debt, increase the debt, it's okay, there's no inflation. You know, if these people really believe that there's no downside to unlimited government spending, unlimited government money printing, then the response is, then why do we need federal income taxation at all? If you can print money anyways, why do we have to, income tax at all. The only reason I could think of if money printing is okay to federally income tax is to keep people poorer. It's the government trying to take money out of people's hands. You know, another thing I think about when it comes to this topic is, you know, the Federal Reserve, you know, the Federal Reserve prints money, you know, the quantitative easing and the way they mechanically do it is they, they uh, buy U.S. Treasury bonds from the banks who then, you know, the Fed gets the bonds and the banks get the cash. And the banks have the money before the inflation hits. And they lend it out to who? It's the biggest banks in the countries who we're talking about. They lend it out to the biggest customers in the world that they have, you know, huge corporations. And so, you know, it's not until the money finally makes it to normal people, you and I, people with small businesses, people with a W-2 job, that, uh, that the inflation has finally hit and the value of that dollar is even less than it was. 
you know, it's a similar thing on this topic when people say, oh, trickle-down economics failed. The leftist says that. say, yeah, it did fail. And the Federal Reserve is fundamentally trickle-down economics. It's literally what it is. Mm. It's give the money to the ultra-wealthy, and by the time it gets to us, it, it, uh, it's, it's worthless. Um, you know, the other thing I was going to bring up on this topic, um, you know, it, yeah, income inequality is part of it too. You know, when there is inflation, you know, which means the cost of everything goes up, you know, there's different types of inflation. There's, you know, obviously there's commodity inflation, and then there's there's um, asset inflation, you know, home values, what have you. And there's wage inflation. Eventually, wages do catch up, but usually it's the last one to hit. So again, all of these things are, are ways to say, you know, libertarianism is not, or the, or the, the uh, laissez-faire economic perspective is not the perspective of favor the rich, screw over the poor. It's, no, it's the, it's the opposite. It's we don't want the government taking money from the poor, the people on fixed income, the people who are on wages that haven't caught up to the inflation yet. Um, the government, what, what you are, what you Republicans, Democrats are wanting to do of tax and redistribute or tax and spend, like you are taking money from the, um, from the working people and giving it to, giving it to the wealthy. So no, I, I don't, I, I think, you know, a lot of libertarians, like even Javier Malay, like when he went to the World Economic Forum, I loved that he, you know, didn't just play the party line. I loved that he really, you know, talked, talked shit to him a little bit. But like some of the stuff where he's like, he's like, to, and to you capitalists, to you wealthy business owners, like you are the heroes of the world, sort of Ayn Randy and John Galt stuff. Mm. Like I'm not saying that people need to be demonized, but I do think the economics of libertarianism are really beneficial for the working man, for the poor. And we don't need to cede that ground to the left mm. and just say, oh, the market will sort it out. I think we have strong arguments as to why it's better for the poor for us to stop taking money out of their pockets. From a political perspective... One of the things Javier Malay did when he, he was interviewed at first, I don't know if he saw this, is he said he is not going to do business specifically with communist countries. He will, although, you know, do free trade with China and other communist countries. But he specifically said he's going to be very friendly with Israel and the United States. Did you hear that? Right. Okay. Yeah. So there is, I guess, and part of that I like, actually, because... <laughs> If you're too principled and you're like, and oh yeah, and on top of this, to hell with the United States and Israel. Obviously, he wouldn't say that, right? Um, but speaking to the big business owners, he's trying to make a pitch to them, right? So it's a political move. Yeah, I mean the Israel thing. I don't really know what the story is on that. I guess I'm not too fired up about Argentina's foreign policy because they essentially have no foreign military. Sure. The way I wish we were. Um, yeah, the United States, I mean, it's tricky. A lot of some of the more, some of the more hardcore libertarians who are almost addicted to never winning, um, they, uh, oh, he's switching to the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is a bad currency, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, yeah, the U.S. dollar is not a great currency, but compared to the Argentinian peso, it's tremendous. It compared to pretty much all, most <laughs> currencies, I think, in the world, the United States, yeah. the U.S. dollar has been struggling but not as much as the rest of the world. Yeah, well, that that was certainly the case for a long, long time. I, I think those days are a little behind us. With, uh, with post, bricks. Well, with, I was going to say, with, well, yeah, there's that too. Who knows? And, of course, you know, if, they, if the uh, oil-producing countries switch away from the U.S. dollars, who knows what the ramifications of that will be. I was just alluding to, um, you know, for years, I always thought the dollar did better compared to the euro because as bad as our central bank and as bad as our balance sheets were, Europe's were worse. I was then in COVID. It was like overnight we printed six trillion, didn't bat an eye. 
whereas Europe argued over $1 trillion for a year. So mm. I'm a little concerned with the U.S. dollar long term. But in any case, um, yeah, I, I, I just think... Uh, I just think from the from an economic standpoint, we don't need to cede ground to the left that, oh, we're just looking out for the rich. I don't think it's the case at all. And I think the evidence of that is is by the fact that, realistically, the the wealthy are the ones who want the taxation. They want the regulations. They want the protections, barriers to entry. So I think there's a very strong argument for libertarianism to be a good um, explanation to be used when talking to uh, the blue-collar the blue collar community. To summarize what you said, Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, if you hear a Bernie bro type, which there's many, and a lot of them are great people, but if they say trickle-down economics doesn't work, it helps the rich, and it really screws over the poor, your rebuttal... My response is, you're correct. Trickle-down economics does not work, and we have the most clear-cut example of trickle-down economics happening right now in this country, supported by Democrats and Republicans. And it is, we are going to print new money, we're going to give it to the ultra-wealthy first, and it'll trickle-down. You agree it's not working? We need to stop that practice. What's your evidence that the poor are getting screwed in this system? Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's the inflation. I really do. You know, I think it's the inflation. I think it's the fact that the wage inflation comes last. Um, and I think it's again, it's these it's these charts you can show of income inequality and all that. You know, obviously the key difference is like libertarians don't we don't um, have a problem with income inequality. Because it's unfair. This is not kindergarten. That's not why we're upset. But it's because it's it's because it's uh it's it's enriching one group at the other at the expense of another. You know, it's discriminatory. Not to sound too uh, too woke there, but no, I mean it's no, no. That is right. an interesting thing yeah. because liber- a principled libertarian will see what's going on in Palestine and acknowledge that there's an imperialist type nation here and they're really treating these people bad and it's not fair. It's not. It doesn't appear to me, at least, to be fair at all what's going on to the people in Gaza. Sounds woke. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, you have to... Uh, yeah, and that's the same thing on this topic that I want to discuss. You know, you have to be very careful about... You can't risk acknowledging the same problems that a leftist might and then fall into the trap of, well, you just sound like a leftist. Mm. But you, have to, you have to tie it back in, but... You know, I, I think sometimes the response of, oh, no, the income, the wealth gap's not a, not a thing or not an issue or whatever, um, it's, just, it's just the wrong approach because I think there is real hard evidence that it is. To be fair, I'm not saying this applies to every, you know, question or problem that a leftist brings up that you can say, yeah, you're right, and here's why. You know, one example of one that a lot of leftists like to talk about is the wage gap between males and females, which is not a real gap. You know, it's explained easily by job choice and hours worked and, and danger and all that. But I just mean this big, big macro topic of libertarians for the rich only is uh, is not true. And if anything, there's a lot of evidence to show that unlibertarianism that we've seen over the last hundred years is for the rich only. Did you see where Tucker Carlson blamed a lot of our economic woes in our country? I think he was talking to... Glenn Greenwald. I think I think Tucker Carlson did an episode with Glenn Greenwald, and he was trying to talk with the lefty jargon, I think. And he said, you know, all these libertarian policies are just not working type right. thing. Right. And I'm just like, what in the hell I know. are you talking about, Tucker? Yeah. What in the hell? Where? What did he mean? I don't know what he meant. I, I, I think, well, I think, well, I guess what he meant is, 
lack of protectionism, lack of tariffs. Okay, that's what it comes, and that's that's okay, the okay. that's what it comes that's down to. That's what it. Okay, that's what right. It it's the whole, and that's the sort of the downside of the America First group is they they really believe like if we just had it all, if we just raise tariff, like Trump said, I think yesterday that if he gets an office, sixty percent tariffs on anything coming from China. <laughs> and it's like well, if you want to make people pay sixty pay sixty percent more for stuff, that's that's fine. Um, no, I, you know, look, I, I want to bring manufacturing back to the United States as well, but the, the reason that, um, well, there's a few reasons why it's not happening. I, in a prior life, I did a ton of work for an American business that was doing some manufacturing in Mexico. And, um, you know, the idea that like, oh, American businesses only, only manufacture in other countries because it's cheaper there. It's just not true. I mean, there's, first of all, there's a labor crisis here which is essentially a welfare problem where it's like, we have a ton of people who don't want to work here. You know, mm. it's not like, I mean, unemployment is low here. When you use the government numbers, it is low. And the reason is not because there's not many people working. It's because, you know, I think the stats I saw was like in 19, in the 1960s, uh, working age men, I think 85% of them worked. And now it's down to 61% or something. So okay. that means, you know, 24% of a population of 300 million, or I guess a working age men would be like 150 million. So that's probably 10 million, 10, 50 million American men that are not in the workforce anymore. Um, another aspect is education. I mean, as we, I'm sure you've discussed in this podcast extensively, you know, the Department of Education and the education system in this country is essentially intentionally dumbing down America because there's no benefit to D.C. if we're smart. So, you know, there's a skill gap as well. So I want to bring manufacturing back to the United States. The way to do that is to fix the education system, get costs down, and then it will come back naturally, not make it more expensive for anybody to go buy a hat, you know, by 60%. So I think that's what Tucker meant. That's the only thing I can think of because so I went off a tangent there. But you're, otherwise, right. you're exactly right. What on earth otherwise is libertarian that's been going on? I can't even I can't even think of it. That's the only thing I can think of is that they don't like the free trade aspect of it. Once again, your marketing to the Bernie bro for the, our topic we're f- trying to focus on in this episode, your pitch is so- somewhat consistent with what caught on in the Ron Paul revolution with young people. For sure. And the Fed. Can I make a quick, actually, because it ties in both of those two questions about the Bernie bros and the Tucker Carlson was, um, this, and it's a very, I really don't want to get into this topic, it's not my expertise, but this whole open borders thing and immigration topic. I almost brought that up earlier when you were talking about I zoning. Know. I was like, wow, I, I should throw this at him. My head just has so much shit yeah. going on where I'm like, chill out, Kelly. It's not my big topic. I don't know a ton about it. But one thing interesting on that point is in a 20, before 2016, I can't if it was 2012 or 2016 when Bernie was running for office, the topic of immigration came up. And as you remember, Obama, you know, there were cages in the border during Obama. So, um, but they were nice cages. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but no, you know, they were nice cages. Obama said they were nice. Yeah. It didn't sound that's bad right. at all. Yeah. That's right. So we shouldn't worry. But, um, no, but anyways, the topic of immigration was brought up to Bernie. Should we do more immigration? And the idea everybody thought is that he would say yes. And he said, he goes, open borders. That's that, that's that Koch brothers bullcrap, meaning the, you know, KOCH, those libertarian benefactors. And he goes, no, I, I want jobs to go to Americans, not not immigrants. Now, he changed his tune later. But um, but it's interesting. There is an element, and Tucker could be coming at it from this standpoint, too, of like this strain of libertarianism that loves uh, open borders and tons of immigration because it results in less expensive labor. And I don't want to get into that topic, and I'm not even saying that's the worst thing ever or I'm anti-immigration um, or anything like that. But it is interesting how, you know, 
like people talk about a horseshoe. There sort of at one point was this sort of agreement between the protectionist right and the sort of socialist left of like, you know, we don't want tons of immigration because we want to make sure all the resources here are shared for just Americans. And so it's it's interesting um, how these things can sort of wrap around. Now, Bernie obviously has been corrupted by the system and has wound up buying into all the sort of neoliberal things he used to hate. But um, but it's funny how you can find common ground with those sort of people in certain arenas. Man, a lot of topics being touched on. Um, the, the focus of... If we're having some political body, a political party, we're trying to take action within a, let's say, our country. The concept that you would be focused on the people in the country seems to be a very popular, um, I know that was a simplification, but that approach seems to be popular among Democrats, Republicans, everybody. Agreed. Yeah, it's, it seems like more people are coming to that realization. It makes me optimistic. They don't think that, uh, well, I don't know. I was going to say that, but then you look at Ukraine, what? Russia, how many people were happy to, oh, yeah, send money over there, send money over there. We have to support them. Israel, got, you know, Israel, Palestine, same thing, yeah. No, look, so I, they, they don't see that that's not hurting us. Have you seen the numbers about how Raytheon and all those big weapons manufacturers, they put plants in every single state across the country? Right. So they're literally bringing jobs while they're all getting rich as hell. Right. <laughs> and killing yeah. so many innocent people. Right. There are a bunch of people who are like, oh, no, my cousin works there and I, I'm going to vote. You know, I want yeah. her to keep her job yeah. type things. That's all across the country. It's yeah. crazy. The whole thing's so corrupted. It is. No, I think to answer your question, I think you're right that a lot of it is a very popular idea to look. If we're going to be spent taxing, we should be spending the money on people here. I think the problem is separate. It's that. People just get so easily propagandized. And you would have thought, it's one of the more disappointing things has been the sizable Republican support for Israel-Ukraine war and all that. You know, after you a lot of Republicans, not all, but a lot who maybe it took them longer than we would have liked, but saw through the COVID propaganda, you know, quickly realized that the virus wasn't as dangerous as we were being told, realized that the vaccine didn't stop the spread, realizing, you know, that, the, that the big pharma companies were in bed with uh, with them. that And then also saw through Ukraine, Russia, there are a lot of Republicans did, that so quickly after that they just bought right in to Israel, Israel, Palestine. And it just it's just sad to see. You thought they had taken the red pill, as they say. You thought they would be able to see through it. But I guess when it's, what it comes down to is when propaganda happens to match up with your already existing preconceived biases, you're happy to eat it up. You know, Ooh. it's kind of what you wanted to hear. And so, um, you know, it's disappointing to see. Um, but but I do have a lot of hope from what you're bringing up of that people are starting to think more domestically instead of instead of foreign-oriented. Because uh, as we know, spending this much money overseas is not sustainable. I guess. I guess it's not sustainable. doesn't seem to be sustainable. We're talking a little bit of borders. I'll just ask, did you see anything that happened between, was it Clint Russell and Jacob Hornberger? I, uh... In Georgia? Was it in Georgia? It was in Georgia. I did not see um, the actual clip from Georgia. I guess from what I gather, it was Clint Russell was moderating the debate, and he asked each of the uh, debaters whether or not they had received the COVID vaccine. And, uh, And then I saw a little bit of Jacob Hornberger's rebuttal 
And he was like, oh, it was like McCarthyism, the Great Inquisition, is all I really saw. Is there a lot more to it than that? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. But but I didn't know, actually. Thank you for the explanation. Yeah. I didn't even know about that question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but the reason I brought it up was Jacob Hornberger, for those of our listeners who don't know, is kind of considered by many to be older within the Libertarian Party, kind of like an old school Libertarian. I don't know exactly when he started, but he was buddies with Ron Paul or probably still is. <laughs> right. But he is supposedly, staunchly, open borders. Which is not the flavor of the month right now with the Libertarian Party official direction, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, late Murray Rothbard, like early in his life, was very open borders. But then later in his life, he, I think, came to the realization or his opinion that you can't have open borders with a welfare state. Sure. And um, I don't know. It's a topic that I'm conflicted on. I, I wouldn't call myself anti-immigration by any means. Uh, first of all, I think. Most immigrants are coming here for the right reasons. Um, and I think that realistically there are a lot of jobs that current Americans won't do or aren't doing. And uh, so I don't have any major problems with it. But I I don't live in a border state. And you talk to people in Texas, they feel very differently. And some of the numbers you, some of the numbers you see are, are honestly too large for me to even believe. Like when they're talking about you know, 30 million over the course of a few years, like that's 10% of the country's population. Are there really that many people floating around that came here illegally? Like maybe there are, again, I don't live in a border state. I don't know, but, um, I don't know. I mean, I have, I have problems. Well, the whole open borders debate is like, it's so similar to other debates that it just winds up being, you come up with two labels and if you actually get people talking about it, they actually agree on a lot. Like, some of the open borders people are like, yeah, I want open borders, like Ellis Island. And you talk to a supposedly closed border libertarian, they're like, well, I just want to make sure everyone's processed. And it's like, you guys are coming to the same place anyway. Mm. So you never really know. But you do talk to some, excuse me, open borders libertarians who like, like I've asked one who's in Kentucky. I asked him, I said, so if all property was privatized like we both want, you know, would I have an obligation to let somebody walk through my property to go to onto the next private piece of property. Mm. And he said, yeah. He said, there's a reasonable, and they have it in Europe. It's called the right to roam, freedom to roam laws. It doesn't really exist in the United States. And I'm thinking to myself, like, that doesn't seem consistent with our American or libertarian understanding of property rights. It doesn't seem consistent with the American thing right. at all. And so you never really know. Like, when somebody says they're open borders, they mean they want Ellis Island, which I think is fairly reasonable, or they want, like, freedom to roam laws where it's like, you kind of lose part of your private property rights, which I wouldn't be fine with. So uh, it's tricky, but it's a topic, I don't know. And then even setting aside the whole libertarian perspectives on immigration, I view libertarian, I'm sorry, immigration as sort of, I, I think it's getting a huge spotlight on it because it's a tremendous wedge topic like abortion is slash was. You know, with Roe Roe versus Wade being overturned, I think it's going to be harder for the Republicans to fundraise on abortion and it's going to be harder for the Democrats, even though they, some of them are saying, oh, we're going to get it codified in the law to fundraise on abortion. I think immigration is the next big topic they're using as a wedge, when, uh, when personally I'd still rather talk about just the Fed, the wars, and all that. Of course, the Fed does spill over into not only your job on the city council in northern yeah. Kentucky, yeah. but also the immigration and everything. I mean, how many of the, if it's tr- if those numbers are anywhere close to being accurate about the number of people coming in, Oh yeah, and then it's not 
supposedly that difficult at some point for a lot of them to start getting benefits. Right. Yeah, I mean, and uh, yeah, and I think, again, I, I'm not really decided on this issue, and there's counterpoints to everything. I mean, certainly the fact that so many are coming in, it's like, and you hear rumblings of, like, people coming from a thousand miles away and, like, walking through the jungle, and all of a sudden there's an NGO from the UN who's handing out maps saying this is where you should cross. It's like, well, that's clearly not just an organic thing that's happening. Mm. Uh, but then the counterpoint to the welfare thing is like, well, border patrol is much more expensive than this kind of putting them up in a hotel type few weeks sure. so from a spending standpoint. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I do like what Ron Paul said years ago. I thought the wall itself, a physical wall, was pretty dumb. Uh, and I mean, and what he, because what he, not even the money to use it, the money, I mean, $5 billion for a wall versus $160 billion to Ukraine. Clearly we can afford it. But I like what Ron Paul said. We said, I don't like walls because they're typically used to keep people in instead of keep people out. Mm. And so there's that aspect of it. But I don't know. Um yeah, Hornberger is an interesting one. I, you know, I don't know a ton about him. I know he's a Ron Paul friend. Um, he, he's an interesting guy. I, I saw one thing I saw from him recently was when the United States traded that um, that uh, Russian gun lord, warlord guy, for Brittany Griner. Okay. Yep. Like he, uh, I saw some writing by him about the crimes that that guy had been convicted of, and it was like total CIA entrapment. So like Hornberger is like super. Like red pilled, like he's not he's not buying into the propaganda. Uh, but I guess the accusations that he did with COVID, though. So, but and I, my my the main thing I remember about Hornberger was when Justin Amash tried to enter the um, presidential race for the LP in 2020. And Hornberger attacked. Were you, were you there? No, I just watched like some of the live streams and like I just watched Hornberger attack the hell out of Justin Amash. Why? Not being radical enough. And like I'm pretty radical, but I was like this guy was in Congress, he's got a name, he's done some great stuff, like, why are you going after him? And there's a big part of me that feels that Hornberger going after Amash turned Amash off the party and running, continuing to run, because he was getting just assaulted by this guy, and also turned a lot of people off to Hornberger, letting Joe Jorgensen win. Mm, and so I, Heading into 2020, I was new to libertarianism, and I was following it, and it seemed like the smart money was on Hornberger. I thought. Right. I was confident, actually, right. he was going to come through. I think I had a interview lined up with him. Did you? One of his guys said. It didn't end up happening. Never have interviewed him to this day. Um, but, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I mean, and the whole thing about Clint's question, I don't know. I don't, I don't mind him asking that question. I mean, I'll answer the question myself. If somebody asked me was I vaccinated, my response would be, yeah, I got shots one and two, and I regret it. You know, I, me too. I, That's my answer, also. Right, like I, not that I regret it in the sense of like I'm scared. I mean, my belief on the COVID vaccine is that, um, yes, there is, there is, there are real documented vaccine injuries, but the odds of it happening are probably as, as extremely low as a normal healthy person getting really sick from COVID. Mm. You know, and certainly people can have a choice, but I think I made the wrong choice. I wish I would not have gone along with the cultural zeitgeist. I wish I would have not gotten it. Um, I, I did refuse to allow my kids to get the vaccine, which I was happy I at least did that. But um, Good for you. But that's the thing. It's like from the standpoint of these people who got the vaccine and still think it was a good thing, like just answer the question. If you think it's good, then say, yeah, I got it. And I'm glad I did. Sure. You know, like I don't know why it's like, no, I'm not going to answer. Oh, my gosh, it's the Inquisition. Like, be honest. So <laughs> Hornberger maybe was just being super thin skinned. Yeah, possibly. Which that doesn't make mean that I don't like him. That doesn't right. mean that. <laughs> and you know what? Like. There's no reason he couldn't have said, like, yeah, I'm 70. Like, it's a different math equation for 70-year-olds than it is for people in their 30s. You sure. Know? So, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess 
maybe, well, maybe their idea was like their fear of saying, yes, I got it. And then not complaining about the question was that, oh, the, the Clint, Clint's fans type people, the Mises Cox people, maybe they don't even have enough nuance to understand why I got it. It's like, well, Surely this scorched earth approach that you're taking afterwards is not going to help you either. <laughs> he, I so, saw him record a video of himself while driving right, his car, right. and he's just going off about how his McCarthyism. Right, right. I yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah. I'm here for that. Now, I don't know on a national stage how many people really care about this. Well, that, yeah, you know, that's a great point. So I saw the big Twitter account or X account being libertarian had a poll that got several thousand votes, and it was like, it was like, what's the number one thing keeping you know, libertarians from being dominant on the national stage. I saw that, yep. And I was surprised that the one that won was like libertarian infighting because believe me, the libertarian infighting is a giant waste of time and totally unnecessary. But like 99% of people have no idea who... I didn't vote for that either. I right. agree because... But it's like they what, don't know what party, what party doesn't have infighting? Right. And it's like, it's not like the person on the street's like, well, I would vote libertarian, but I saw that on the on the Libertarian National Committee business email channel that there was some fighting between... It's like, no, no one knows or cares. No one even knows who Justin Amash is outside of, you know, except for outside of political junkies. So, people in Michigan probably, but aside Yeah, yeah, from Michigan that. people and political junkies. But, uh, so, no, I mean, we, we, we got... I mean, we can stop the infighting. It's ridiculous, but it's not the biggest thing holding us back. Very interesting. I have talked to some people who say... My buddy Tim Cordova, I've done, an, I've done many episodes with. He's a, a Republican. And he does say that the libertarians got to get their shit together. And he's talking about electoral politics. Like, hey, I'm not going to vote for you guys if you guys are such a mess. I mean, who even is your candidate? Well, yeah. Type thing. What do you think of Michael Recken, Rechtenwald as a candidate? Um, You know, I like him. I'm not like... I'm not really blown away, thrilled with any of the candidates. You know, obviously the great hope was Dave Smith would do it. And um, partially because of his alternative media connections and partially because he's just a super engaging, dynamic guy. Um, I like Michael Rechtenwald. He's clearly a very smart guy. I host, I organized and hosted him to come to Northern Kentucky and we had an event. And uh, I, I told him, I said, Michael, I think like, he he relies on prepared remarks too much, and he just sounds like like one of the guys who was there. He goes, "I was going to buy his book, but I feel like he just read it to me, so now I'm not going to buy it." Um, and when he put his notes down and went off the cuff, I thought he was great. And I told him, that. "I said, please go off the cuff more." I I think people with prepared remarks usually are doing it because they're not smart enough. You clearly are smart mm. enough. You know the stuff inside and out. Yeah, he could argue the other side, and we wouldn't even know. He's like right. just put on his Marx yeah. hat or something. So if he wanted. yeah, so I'm I'm going to support whoever the um. Libertarian Party nominee for president is, and I've given some money to Michael Rechtenwald, and I've given some money to Joshua Smith. But, um, yeah, you have to be realistic. I, I would have liked some bigger names this year. I mean, I, I'd still, like, if Justin Amash said tomorrow, even though he's not as radical as me, if he said tomorrow I'm going to run for LP president, I'd be like, yeah, that's the guy. Because, again, he has the name, he has the experience. Sure. And, you know, we got we got to move these things forwards in bigger steps. But, uh, but no, I have no problem with Michael Rechtenwald, and, and if he winds up being the nominee, I'll... I'll, I'll go knock on doors for him for sure. I'll tie it back um, to a comment earlier. How are you on time? I'm okay. Okay, for now. Um, you mentioned that poll on Twitter, and it came back that Libertarian Party infighting is the no number one drawback to libertarianism today or something like that. Thomas Massey commented, did you see that? He said the worst thing that libertarians 
the the thing that libertarians are the worst at is, and I think he said politics. Right. Yeah. What do you think he meant by that? <clears throat> well, you're, you're his spokesman. Uh, yeah, apparently, <laughs> I think he probably meant there's too many purists, um, too much gatekeeping. Okay. And uh, it's 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 in you know it's easier to say that from one of the two larger parties than it is for the third, um, like we are. So, yeah, I mean, and you look at the Republican Party in general. There is no overarching political philosophy behind the Republican Party. There, um, you know, there's there's the evangelicals that seem to pretty much just care about abortion, and then you have yeah the business interests that care about um, not raising. Uh, you know, corporate taxes, income taxes. And then you have, uh, at least for a while, you had sort of the military, we need war, we need war wing. Now that seems to be in both parties. But, um, and so I think, I think, yeah, the electoral politics is a lot about compromising and team building and collaborating and all that. And libertarians are bad at that because they're always trying to out libertarian each other. Could you describe what happened with Thomas Massey being the sole the lone no vote on the what was it the Congress? Did you see that about the anti-Semitism? Yeah, I I read about it a little bit. Um, what a loaded question I'm throwing at the elected official. Yeah, let's jump right into the anti-Semitism talk. Yeah, no, I think it was, I thought it was fine. I mean, the first sentence of that resolution was it was the it was the words of a uh, like Congress declares that to uh, be against. You know, so to, to not support Israel is to be anti-Semitic. Of course he's going to vote no on that. And it's shocking that, not shocking, it's uh, Even bizarre. Even Rashida Tlaib, I don't think, voted no. Right, I she think... She voted like present or yeah, something. Yeah, I think a lot of the squad just voted present. What What a cowardly thing. I know, I know. What yeah. a cowardly thing. And those are the anti-Semites. Right. Is what everybody, the Republicans all tell me. Those, those people are all anti-Semitic. They wouldn't even go on record like right. Massey did. Right. And I think another part of Massey voting no on that is a lot less interesting. It's that resolutions are stupid. Like, I vote against resolutions in my city sometimes because, like, what what is the purpose of this? Mm. If it's, like, a really great resolution that is something unique, like, if there was a resolution saying, like, we're not going to lock down next time, maybe I'd vote yes. But, like, by and large, some of these resolutions are like, what's the point? It's not putting a law in place. It's doing nothing besides just, oh, Congress says this, not a law. Just, we feel this way. Just waste of time. So I'm sure Massey probably, I don't know if you've ever voted, I mean, he may have, I don't know if you've ever voted for a resolution because they're just a waste of time. Again, it's it's noted. It's like I said earlier about city council. This is the stuff they spend time on, and then the other stuff just gets rushed through. You know, we're gonna spend all our time on resolutions, which are just here's how we feel as a body, and then we'll spend. You know, we'll let you guys read the omnibus spending bill for four point six trillion for thirty five minutes before you vote on it for this new emergency that just happened last right. week. Right, right, yeah, yeah. You know, not to draw back to my city, but like we have that happen in my city. New emergencies have come up. Here's a good example. So this house in my city was like. Um, dilapidated and abandoned and no one lived there and it's an environmental dam- risk and also, oh, there's a risk that kids could be crawling around in it and getting hurt and the city would be liable because we didn't blah, blah, blah. And so we need $50,000 to demolish it, $50,000 to demolish it. And I'm pushing back, 50000 why? What is this? We don't own this property. At least, not that I like, you know, foreclosing people's properties, but like, we had talked to the owner. He's like, it's the trust owns it. The trust has no more money. I can't pay taxes. I don't want it anymore. I'm not doing anything with it. He wouldn't even sell it. I was like, at least get it to be city property before we put 50 grand. And then the guy comes back and says, oh, great. Now I can sell it. But anyways, getting back to my point about emergencies, 
the city staff and the other city council, the mayor, they're telling me, we have to do it. It's an emergency. It's, it's a risk. It's a risk. It's an emergency. And eventually I go, how long has this house been like this? Four years. What? So it's been this way for four years, but now it's an emergency, even though it was just as bad four years ago. So, you know, they're always going to come up with some reason for more spending is what it comes down to. Who's going to win the presidential race, Biden or Trump? And who's going to be Trump's VP? <clears throat> oh, my gosh. Trump's VP, I really have no idea. I've heard rumblings of Elise Stefanik, but are they going to put two New Yorkers on there? Probably not. Mm. I almost wonder if it'll be DeSantis. You know, because DeSantis came right out and endorsed. Okay, okay. And he's Florida. That may be tactically a good move for Trump. Right, right. Because I do think, at least among the Republicans that I know, my closest friends who are Republicans, some of them are still impressed by how DeSantis handled Florida. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's no other sort of Republican governors that come to mind that would draw on a lot of votes. I mean, you have sort of the moderate Republicans, but DeWine or Hogan, they're not going to do anything for that ticket. And Yeah, I would say DeSantis. As for who's going to win, I don't know. I mean, part of me is looking at Biden, and it's like, are people going to support Biden as he's getting into war with... Yeah, that's interesting. With In Yemen, in Iran... Everywhere, it's like, and of course, Israel, Gaza, like, but I guess, you know, I mean, Trump said it forever ago about Obama, he, like leading up to Obama's uh, second election, Trump said, he goes, watch out for Obama starting a war so that people want to stick with an incumbent during wartime. Mm. And uh, so I'm looking at all these wars Biden's starting and thinking like, is that popular? But I guess the old adage is you stick with the president during wartime. So, wow. So, and, you know, Trump, frankly, did the same thing. There were whispers of war with Iran towards the end of Trump, the Trump-Biden election. So, I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that there's just no way Biden can win again, but I didn't think Andy Bashir would win in Kentucky, and he dominated. Okay. Dominated. That's interesting. You know? And, you know, a lot of times what happens in Kentucky is a forebearer for what happens nationally. I mean, Bevin was the forebearer for Trump. Mm. And then Bevin losing was the four ever Trump losing. So wow, okay. So uh, and that you know because we're in an off year and all that. So okay. I don't know, I don't know. That governor race was crazy. Like looking at some of these rural counties that you like historically would go like eighty five fifteen, like it was like Cameron would win them like fifty five forty five. Like what is happening here? So uh, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, the more I think the interesting question is like, will Biden be the nominee or not? Okay. Or are they going to get rid of him? What do you predict there? Yeah, I think he'll stay. I think they'll stay with him. I, I know someone, one of my close friends believes Michelle Obama's just waiting to be subbed in. Yeah, I mean, everybody talks about Michelle Obama or Gavin Newsom. I don't see how you go to Newsom without ticking off the feminists. Like, you can't skip over Kamala Harris, <laughs> obviously. Oh. Just go straight to another white dude. But uh, I will be furious if they skip over Kamala Harris yeah. for Gavin Newsom. I'll be raising a... Right, all sorts just of hell the fun of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just like, like all sorts. Just of like fun. your RFK, uh, didn't you register Democrat to? Uh, I did. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I uh, did. I'm, I'm registered back to being Republican now. Okay. At one point, I thought I was going to uh, vote maybe for Vivek. If he's saying he's going to do this shit to the Fed, he right. was at one point saying, "Yeah." Now it's all fluff. He couldn't have done any of it. Right. He was saying, "Oh yeah, we're going to end the Fed." 
Like, he said some crazy stuff. I'm like, yeah. well, I guess I make, have to vote for this guy, at least in the primaries, if he's going to say that. He's going to make Malay look moderate, is what he said, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, uh, Vivek, he had his problems, too. I think he was getting more radical as he realized, like, he wasn't getting the support he needed in the Republican Party. I think he was hoping going radical. You have to. Right. He knows he's trying to appeal to you and I, right. and he's trying to bring in different groups. Smart yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah. So, no, he's a smart guy. I, I hope he um, continues in politics, because... Yeah, he's willing to be radical, which is cool. Now, you know, you get in office and, you know, we can see. But, Bill, I appreciate you coming on the, the, the episode today. Before we wrap things up, if someone's listening, they like what you have to say, do you have any social media you like to promote? Is there any call to action you have for anyone listening? I don't have a ton. I did start a Facebook page. I need to be more active with it. Bill Schultz, Crescent Springs City Councilman. Um, no, I, you know, I, I think I mentioned last time I've never had um, any motivation to be a political figure whether it's as a candidate or uh, or an activist social media whatever but uh i i i encourage people to reach out to me specifically if uh, and put my email in the show notes and all that if they're interested in running for local office happy to talk through that with anybody coach them in whatever way i can just because i've done it and um it's not as bad as you think I love it. Well, Bill Schultz, thank you very much for your time. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, we will have another episode of The Kelly Patrick Show out soon.